thank everybody for your generosity toward uh, Silas and um, just our con- your constant giving spirit. Um, really awesome. Uh, today I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Job, book of Job. Um, if you open your Bibles to the middle and you land in Psalms, it is the book right before Psalms. If you open your Bibles in the middle and land anywhere else, I can't help you. Um, because uh, I don't know where you are, but you go to the table of contents and you'll be able to find it. Book of Job. And, and, and I, also, I also know that uh, it's been a couple weeks since, you know, we've been in Genesis and everything. But um, I just over the past uh, week or so, I just had this um, kind of on my heart. Um, and so uh, we'll be back in Genesis next week. But uh, this, uh, I don't know, became something that was on my heart uh, when I started reading about a man uh, uh, reading about, I'm sorry, I was going to say a man name, but this isn't his name, it's his title, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith. Right. Don Faith was uh, tasked in 1950 to lead a division uh, up, uh, of troops up the eastern side of North Korea during the Korean War. This was the U.S.'s advance um, after South Korea and North Korea to try to make it to the border of China. And so he was tasked with leading his division up the east side. Little known to the American military was that the Chinese army was waiting for them and waiting to trap them, and trap them they did. Uh, several divisions, uh, including army and marines, became completely encircled by Chinese troops, and that included Don Faith and his division. There was, no, uh, there was no way either for the units to uh, get to each other because if they were to leave their own position, it would weaken their position. Uh, and the Chinese would attack and they would, you know, lose a lot of soldiers. So there's no way to get in and no way to get to Don Faith and rescue him. And if there's no way in, there was certainly no way out. They're, they're trapped. Uh, and Don's Faith men, uh, his men were... You know, they, their supplies were dwindling and uh, their morale was dwindling after night after night of assaults by the Chinese. The Chinese would only attack at night. So that's when he was left with no other decision but to move his entire division, about 3,000 men, out. And they knew uh, that they were, they were to fight their way out or die trying. 1,000 men lost their lives uh, in that retreat including Don Faith, and the bodies of those men were never recovered. They remain in North Korea to this day. They were outmaneuvered and outmanned by the Chinese military. Uh, they left behind all of their equipment, uh, and uh, they ended up scattering into dozens of groups because of all the chaos. Among those who escaped and, and made it to uh, one of the bases, uh, most were severely injured. Uh, because, especially because this took place in winter. Many had frostbite um, and that kind of thing. Uh, but not, not long after, uh, maybe a day or two after many of the soldiers came back, a, a soldier was lying in the medical tent and he, and he told his general what his experience was like. And He said, I just want it known, and I'll put this on the record. I swear to you, sir, Colonel Faith did all he could to save his men. They didn't have the equipment the weaponry, and most of the soldiers didn't have the experience or the training to do the job. And worse, it was like God was looking the other way. That's what it felt like. 
We were marching through the worst part of hell and no one, not even God, paid any attention. That feeling that God doesn't care when suffering saps us, uh, it, it, or when suffering, it, it's, when we're suffering, it saps us of any meaning, doesn't it? It, it makes suffering feel just senseless. I mean, I've, I felt like that, have you? That a suffering that just keeps going and, and doesn't get better, and you ask why, and there's no reason, Even those with the strongest faith will find themselves wondering, why all of this suffering? What's the point? And I, I mean, it certainly seems that way to a lot of people right now. The war in, in Ukraine, uh, pandemic, inflation. A, a lot of suffering just seems senseless. And, and, the, and Job, this book, shows us a man who maintains his, his faith through suffering. Yes, but it also shows us how we might be able to make sense of senseless suffering. So what I'd like us to do is just read uh, the first part of Job chapter 1 together. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would sin and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would sin and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and forth fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's a famous scholar uh, who wrote a book about what the Bible says about suffering. And in actual actuality, this, he's, he argues in his book that because the Bible offers so many different answers that sometimes seem contradictory, that the Bible fails to answer questions of suffering. Right? Um, you have all kinds of reasons that the Bible gives for suffering, and because sometimes you can't put two and two together, it doesn't actually help us. But in my mind, that's actually what makes the Bible so wonderful. Not that its answers are contradictory, but that they resonate most deeply with human experience. Because there's not one reason for suffering that satisfies all our 
questions for suffering, right? The Bible gives us many uh, answers. Sometimes they're all true. Sometimes only a few are true. And, and, and if there's one that humans can, can resonate with, it's this. Our first point. Our suffering is sometimes inexplicable. Consider what we know about Job. Right? The first thing that we read about him, yeah, he lives in this place called Uz. Uh, but we also read that he is blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, I don't know about your life and, and what you want said about you. Uh, but I feel like this is a really great assessment. And, and I would like this to be uh, said of my life. Right? That's it. I mean, especially like this is the Holy Spirit inspiring this. It's like, yeah, I would love for the Holy Spirit to say this about me. Right? That's great. In, in other words, what we learn about Job, he's a righteous dude. Okay? He's righteous. And if there's one thing that trips us up, it's when the righteous suffer. It doesn't matter how many times it happens, it just never seems to sit right with us. And, and can I be honest with you for a moment? I, I know about total depravity and the sinfulness of man and, and what we deserve and, and our need for grace. But all my knowledge could not keep me from feeling angry that some couples could have babies and when they neglect them and abuse them, when we could not. And that's wrong. It's wrong of me to feel that way. And I know better, but I still feel that way. But I still think it shows how we can feel about suffering. We, we may not think ourselves as righteous, but certainly we might deserve more than other people something about suffering and righteousness just doesn't sit well with us and, and i bet in this room you can think of a number of reasons why we suffer right everything happens for a reason you could say it's a test right um, god is seeing what's in our hearts um, you, you could say it's it's for sanctification help you grow in, in christ's likeness and it could be to teach us, like humility and dependence, all of those things. But somewhere along the way, our suffering just becomes inexplicable. And in reality, none of those answers are satisfying. They might be true, and we can accept them as true, but they just don't, they're just not enough. Sometimes it's just inexplicable. It's actually kind of absurd because the book of Job shows us how inexplicable his suffering is. Think about how absurd this is. Satan just walks into the presence of God. Well, that's crazy in and of itself. And then, and then God is like, hey, Satan, where have you been? And Satan's like, well, I've been walking around. And God says, well, here's Job. That's crazy. That's supposed to be like, what in the world? world is happening, and I don't know what to tell you other than that's crazy. It's inexplicable. And I'm not... I'm, I'm saying that knowing like God is good and He has all His reasons and, and, and something's happening here, I don't know what, but it's still crazy. I think we can say that it's a little crazy. And, and furthermore, if, if that's not crazy enough, consider... The extent to which Job must suffer. 
He loses all his wealth, all his property, his ten children, and he himself will eventually get covered in boils and rashes that you can't even recognize him. That's a crazy amount of suffering. I would, wouldn't even a fraction of that like be enough? But no, it, it has to be all of that. Uh, for a few months now, I've kind of been following this family that over Christmas break, they lost three of their children, teenage children, in a car crash to drunk driving. Three out of nine. And it's devastating. I can't even imagine that level of suffering that that family must go through. And Job loses all ten. Yes, I believe that a major point of the book of Job is to show that sometimes suffering does not make sense. I'm sorry, but I don't think there's an equation that will help us feel okay with this. It's supposed to feel not right. Unjust. And honestly, I am so glad we have a book like this. Because the Bible is real about human suffering and pain. Never once does the Bible diminish or give tried answers about our suffering and our pain. It's honest because it tells us you may never know why. And boy, is that not a real human experience. (laughs) And it's freeing. It's freeing to have God's Word tell us in so many words you may not know why. The Bible gives us permission to not know. But the problem comes when we try to boil down complex suffering uh, or deep misery into simple answers. That's, that's where the problem comes, and that leads to our next point. Our knowledge is often distorted. So our suffering is sometimes inexplicable and our knowledge is often distorted. Let let me give you a a quick overview of the book of Job. Job never curses God. But he does say some lousy things. And Job's friends know a lot about God, but they are lousy theologians. Job's friends in this book are a great warning. That we would know a lot about God, but not be true to the heart of God. It would be like me knowing my wife likes quality time, and she does. But what do I do for quality time? Well, I, I take her camping, and, and we play soccer together. Right? That's, that's totally missing her heart. Right? I might know a lot about it, but that's not, it's missing her heart completely, right? I'm not getting to her heart. And let me just say right out of the gate that that theology is good. Right? Theology and doctrine and all that stuff, very good. Like God wants us uh, to be knowledgeable. And I know, right, we talk about like hyper-intellectuals and elites and all that kind of stuff, but God wants us to be knowledgeable, right? He wants us to go deep in in the meat of, of good, healthy doctrine and theology. That's what He wants. He doesn't want us to be shallow, He wants to be deep. But theology at the expense of mercy is deadly. 
throughout the book of Job, you have Job who voices a complaint and a friend who answers his complaint with theology. And guess what? Their theology is correct. I mean, there's not a lot wrong in what they say. Listen to to Bildad in in chapter 8, verse 2. He says, how long will you say such things? Right? Job's saying kind of ridiculous things. So he's saying, how long will you say this? Your words are blustering wind. Listen, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? No, 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 he doesn't. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. I mean, that's a pretty true statement, right? God, absolutely God doesn't pervert justice. Absolutely God always does what is right. And, and guess what? We have a lot of promises in the Bible that God will deliver us if we call out to Him. So, so what Bildad's saying isn't entirely incorrect. But, as correct as he is, he's also very wrong. For one, it's pride because he presumes to know God's mind, right? right? He presumes like, oh, the reason your children died is because they sinned. You, you'll hear guys all the time talking about like hurricanes or whatever, like, oh, that city was just a bunch of sinners. And you don't, I mean, yeah, but you don't know. You don't know. So it's pride. But also, more deeply than that, this theology creates a callousness about Job's suffering. Right? Did you catch that? Your children sinned and got what they deserved. I mean, that's callous. But hey, 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 God will make it better. Try saying that to a mom who miscarried. Right? Or parents who do lose their kids in a car crash. Try, try that. that. That kind of theology, it crushes instead of heals. The thing about Job's friends is they might have the right theology, but totally wrong conclusions. I remember several years ago, I was having this conversation with this friend um, about someone we knew, and we were trying to share the gospel with them, but they just wouldn't listen. And, you know, my friend, he just made this passing comment. He said, hey, God is sovereign. If he's not meant to be saved, he won't be saved. So, yeah, I agree. Like, like, yeah, God's sovereign and, and God saves, right? And, and election and all that kind of stuff. But the conclusion shouldn't be a carelessness about people's souls, right? We, we should plead on their behalf. Sometimes we have theology that, that sounds good, but in the end is bankrupt. Zophar, another uh, friend of Job. And get friends with better names, you know, too. But anyway... He goes on to say in chapter 11, Yet if you devote your heart to Him and stretch out your hands to Him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it as only waters gone by. Sounds good, right? But if I can paraphrase Zophar, he's saying, Be good to God and He'll be good to you. Or, heard before god meets us halfway do your part and god will do his and i I think that's bogus because it puts the focus on our efforts 
and, and God relates to us only when we do good things for him. That's why I think that's bogus. And, and especially, especially, like, not only is that to me a bogus on the surface, but especially for someone who's suffering. Hey, just, just do good and God will, God will do good for you. Yeah, right. Sometimes doing good is the hardest thing to do when you're suffering. You don't want someone to tell you something you need to do. You want somewhere where you can lay your head. No, the point I'm trying to make is that right theology, right theology doesn't just mean right doctrine, it means a right heart. And, and when right doctrine uh, doesn't line up with the right heart, that's when our knowledge becomes distorted. That was the problem of the Pharisees. They had all their knowledge. They were correct about a lot of things, but their heart was not right. And to me, the scariest thing about the Pharisees is that they knew so much about God that they end up becoming his greatest enemies. They're a warning. No, a right heart possesses theology with compassion and mercy and tenderness. Especially when it comes to suffering. I mean, that's, that's exactly part of what Jesus meant when he tells the Pharisees, I desire mercy not sacrifice. Don't pay attention to the, the dots and the, the tittles of, of all the facets of the law at the neglect of showing someone mercy and grace. This means that we don't have all the answers to our suffering and we shouldn't act like we do. We might have the Bible that tells us a lot, but that doesn't mean we have all the answers. We just serve the God who has all the answers. It means sometimes the right thing to say is nothing at all. Sometimes saying something is even more damaging. Sometimes the best theology for someone who's weeping is to weep with them. This is a warning to keep us from relying on our theological knowledge to try to solve and answer everything. Because sometimes the answer defies human reason. This leads to our last point. Our God is always majestic. In chapter 38, we are given the reason for Job's suffering. After about 36 chapters of Job's friends giving answers and Job asking why, God shows up. And, and God tells Job, this is why you're suffering. That's not what he says. This is what God says. What is the way to the home of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. God's first answer to Job's suffering, I am sovereign. 
God has all power. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. He has all knowledge. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. He has all authority. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with the flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you saying, here we are? Why does God say all of this? What? Why does He talk about lightning and lions, goats, birds, and horses? Because He does all things without asking anybody else. God doesn't need our permission. We talk about our God-given rights, but in reality, before His sovereignty, our rights are taken away. We don't have rights to life. We don't have rights to health. We don't have rights to possessions, to families, or anything. But that's not the only answer God gives. I am sovereign. I do all things by my own wisdom, my own will, my own authority, my own power. Yes. But He also cares goes on to say in chapter 39 do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food God gives each creature their meal he cares I'm going to go and eat lasagna for my father-in-law's birthday And I'm eating it because God cares enough to give me lasagna. God watches over them. He goes on to say, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? God is like an expectant father in the waiting room, waiting for these things to happen. This isn't just about his control over all things. And and his prerogative to make all decisions. It also shows us his vast concern to care for all things. Listen, it's one thing to know in our heads that God is in control. I think all of us in this room, if we've been in church for very long, we know that. Kind of accept it. God is in control. But it is a whole other thing to truly believe that God cares. Now this isn't suffering, and it's really a silly example, but it's the most recent uh, experience I've had with this same struggle. Like I said, it's silly. It was before we went on vacation, and you have to get all this stuff, like um, you have to upload all these COVID documents and get tested and all this kind of stuff. And like, we were really nervous, okay? Like that we weren't going to be able to go because we took our test, and 
and like it wasn't coming in, and, and we weren't even able to board the plane. Okay, again, not suffering, just silly, but still. And so I, I'm worried about it. Okay, like I'm, I'm worried. I don't want to go to the beach with my wife. Like, ah, uh, you know that kind of thing. I'm worried, and you know I'm just like I'm like praying, like God, please. I know you're in control. I know you're in control, and and like it just hit me, like yes. Yes, you know he's in control, but do you truly believe that he cares enough about you to give you rest? Whether you're at the beach or not. Preferred at the beach, but you know. I had to trust, like Philippians says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, cares enough about me and Mallory that he wants us to rest. And he'll control all things in such a way that he'll give us that rest. It's just a different thing to know that he's in control and to trust that he cares for you. Even, and this is why I use that example, even if something as silly as going on vacation. God cares. I mean, if he cares enough to count down the months when a rabbit will give birth, right? He cares enough about his children getting rest and recharging. He knows we're not infinite. And so the answer to senseless suffering is not in what we know. It's in the supreme sovereignty of God who determines the nesting place of eagles on cliffs. Our answer to suffering is in that we become humbled before this God who does not need to give us a reason for our suffering other than His majesty and His goodness. Sometimes the answer to our suffering is, I am God, you are not. How do we make sense of suffering that just doesn't seem to make sense? Sometimes we can't except to lay down our lives at the feet of a sovereign and caring God. And not just a sovereign God who controls all things, and not just a, a caring God who, who holds us in the palm of His hands, but also a God who comes and suffers with us and suffers for us. Jesus is the greater Job. Job was righteous, yeah, but he was still a sinner. Jesus, the only truly righteous one to suffer truly unjustly. And he not only did that, he did it for others. If there was anyone who had a right to say, God, I don't deserve this, it's Jesus. But he did it anyway. And so not only is, is Job the greater not only is Jesus the greater Job, but He's also the greater friend. Jesus doesn't exhaust. He doesn't smolder. He doesn't bludgeon. Jesus heals. The healing might come in the form of humbling. Healing might be painful, but it's always healing. It's always patient. Sometimes... Other Christians can be the lousiest fellow sufferers. In, in fact, many people get turned off from Christianity because Christians try to offer like all these different reasons why you're suffering instead of just being a good friend. 
like Jesus is. But that's the whole point is, yeah, we, we're a bunch of dopes who don't know what to do, but Jesus always knows what to do. Always patient, always there, always merciful, always tender. So that's the answer that God gives us. We don't know, but we have God who is for us in Christ. Now, I don't know what a lot of you might be going through right now. And I, I know that we go through some stuff, like real big messes. Don't, don't act like you have it all together because we don't have it all together. That's the whole point is, is we can take the most gigantic mess and the worst sins and bring them to this God who cares for you, who directs all things for your good, and who gives you Jesus. And He offers you Jesus every day. And that's the answer to our suffering. may not be the answer that we always want, but it most definitely is an answer that will sustain us to the very end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are our example for suffering. You suffer suffered unjustly. And of all beings who can ask why, you are the only one entitled to ask why, but you knew perfectly why. Because we who are sinners might be forgiven and found righteous in you. And that does not mean that we will not suffer. In fact, we're we're promised suffering, but Lord Jesus, during those times when, when suffering is unexplainable, when it might be senseless, when we're tempted to, to doubt You, I pray that our questions will find their place at Your sovereign and caring feet. That yeah, we may not always have our answers. But we have a God who is sovereign and who cares for us deeply in Christ. We need You, Lord Jesus, to give us greater faith, to sustain our faith. to humble ourselves before you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.